canine cases that come into orthopedics are there appropriately and we know pretty much before we've even heard much about the case at all which legs affected and kind of the route we're going down. Um, our feline orthopedic cases have generally been around the houses completely before they even get to us and because of that I think a lot of them don't ever get to us. Um, so I think owners are not quite as well educated and not well informed and that's our job. We should be educating people better on what to look for. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Little. And this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast. Yes, and we're very lucky to have you with us, Dr. Kirpenstein. Uh, and why is that? <laughs> well, there will be video evidence, I think, of... Uh, of, of, of me the, floating around in the Kansas countryside. Yes, of the belated Yeah, sound. so uh, Dr. Susan is referring to the fact that uh, I kind of forgot. I thought it was an hour later. So I was doing my... Uh, daily walk, which is really good. You have to do that. Uh, do your 10,000 steps every day. And I was just enjoying the peace and quiet until I got a message from Susan. Where are you? And I'm like, oops. <laughs> so I feel really bad for our guest because our guest has been on for already a, quite a long time. And we have been chatting uh, about all sorts of stuff. So uh, yes. including gardeners. <laughs> yes, yes. But she's been um, a good sport. So and um, just before we started recording, before you finally joined us, Yola, um, yeah. I was telling her that I've been excited all day knowing we were going to record record this today. So, Is this our first orthopedic surgeon that we have on? I think so, yes. We haven't had that many surgeons. As a matter of well, fact, we, we have Brighton Stanley. I remember that. But, Brighton, uh, we've had Sarah Boston. Sarah Boston, oncology. And, we had Paul. Colorado, Colorado. Um, Nicole Earhart. Yes, yes. So you're the fourth, but you are the first real orthopod. Yes. So I'm so happy to have you on, uh, Karen. Can you introduce yourself for a second? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Dr. Karen Perry. I'm one of the uh, orthopedic surgeons at Michigan State University. I've been out here since 2015, as you can probably tell from the um, silly accent, not originally from the States. Um, so I did all my training in Scotland, in the UK, and then worked at the Royal Veterinary College there for four years before coming out and joining the team here at Michigan State. So relative newcomer to the States, um, but enjoying every minute of it. And Karen, when was the first time you met me? First time I met you, I think it was when you invited me to lecture in Utrecht, actually. <sighs> Yeah, but I think, I mean, were you, were you doing, uh, did you do your ECVS exams? I did you? do my ECVS, in uh, 2011, I did my ECVS boards, yeah. Yeah, I think I was part of that too, <laughs> in the background a little bit, but uh, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, some of the e ECVS diplomats only remember me because of the exams and oh. how horrible the questions were, oh. so. I think I wiped that whole ECBS boards experience from my memory and have never been back to Zurich since in case it refreshes it. So <laughs> yeah, just to explain to our audience, so ECVS is kind of similar to ACVS, uh, the American College of Veterinary Surgeons. This is the European College of Veterinary Surgeons. And they both have really horrible exams. And, uh, and Karen was uh, 
one of the victims of the ECDS exams. But it's, you know, <laughs> when you finalize your residency after three years, then you get to sit your exams. And after that, you can call yourself a diplomat either for ACDS or ECDS. So um, great. Does the exam have any practical part to it? Like, do you have to do stuff on that exam? No, there's, a, there's like a case-based portion, ah, which is yeah. kind of practical based questions, but no practical per se, no hands-on portion. No. Yes. Not in, in, in Europe. I think they're changing that in, in, in the US. But I'm not exactly sure what they're doing in the US, but it's different than the European exam right now. So, uh, but uh, you know, the, the college is growing in Europe quite big. Uh, mm -hmm. In the US, there's uh, 1,800 wow. diplomats at the moment. I'm not totally sure about that number either, but there's quite a lot of them. And, uh, and, and, and they're specializing more right now. So there's mm -hmm. people that are specializing in, of course, in, uh, you know, orthopedics for soft tissue, but now you can also do fellowships where you can get even more specialization. Mm, yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, so we're going to talk about two things, uh, cats, or three things, cats, orthopedics, and social media. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's a good segue because um, I got very excited about asking Karen on because she, especially on, on Twitter, which is mainly where I see her, she posts these great um, cases, um, uh, you know, what their problem was and what surgery they needed along with some, uh, maybe the radiographs or maybe some videos and then some follow up on them. And it's just, I'm hooked. It's like, you know, I'm addicted to following your cases. You do such a good job. Um, and I just love that you have so many cats in the mix. We just, that just doesn't happen. You know, most of the uh, vets who do uh, a lot of stuff on social media that's case-based, it's not cats. So right. I'm totally hooked. <laughs> well, I'm lucky that a lot of the owners that come in are prepared to do everything that we can do. Obviously without yeah. their buy-in, we, we don't get any of that interesting information. So um we yeah. So, so what, what, what got you started doing that on social media? Like, how did that happen? Did you just one day go, Oh, this is, I should do this on Twitter. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's more, um, I think as we discussed a little bit earlier, this, I think you, you hear this phrase get trotted out all the time, like cats are not small dogs and, and yet actually seeing people act on that in, in and actually really treat them differently, I think is being a little bit slower to, to percolate in. Um, so I guess for me, it was more just trying to show, all these things that we can do in dogs and which are very well accepted a lot of them can also be done in cats if it's if or be done differently or in a slightly different way or maybe just advertising or putting out there that um, this particular condition that doesn't even occur in dogs this is the giveaway clinical sign and, and this is how we can treat it because i think we're um we kind of pretty bad at recognizing cats are in pain and when we do eventually get to that point we kind of tend to write them off as oh it's arthritis we'll just we'll just manage that and often there's a lot more to the story so just trying to get that information out there in whatever way I can really yeah and, and why did you choose Twitter for that and not one of the other platforms or are you on other platforms too um I am on the other platforms the Instagram and and, and Facebook as well and I do tend to post a lot of the same information maybe in slightly different formats on on those other um channels but um I think the Twitter seems to have um, more of an active kind of medical and vet med mm. kind of 
forum if you like and and they really interact more with the posts and and things like that so um it seems to get the information out there and i really like the interaction you get with the human medics as well which now they're getting a little bit more following not that i've got a huge following at all but now a little bit more um sometimes the interaction we get from the, from the from the human medical doctors is is really interesting too like their opinions on what we've done and and asking reasons why and saying what they would do so it just brings another um kind of aspect to everything we're doing that i think is a really interesting interaction it's really good publicity for veterinary medicine because I think on, on the human side too, we still meet so many doctors, right, who just, I don't know what they think we do, but they would, they just don't think we do as much as, you know, we actually can, right? So I think it's quite, it's quite good um, PR um, yeah. for veterinary medicine and for veterinary surgery, obviously, in particular that you do this, because I'm sure there's more than one human medic out there who goes, wow. <laughs> Yeah, we do actually. We had um, a couple of times, and before this, it was always at conferences that we had that conversation. We'd have like a human medic coming in to do the keynote speech or something, and then they would see the slides that other people are presenting. That wow, I had no idea you guys did this much. Um, and yeah, same thing on on Twitter. As I remember, one of the human surgeons was like, "You have interlocking nails for cats," and I was just like. Yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's, it's just quite interesting that they, that they kind of presume we don't do all that. So it's, it's really nice to get that information out there and show that we can do that kind of caliber of, of work and share information, progress one medicine, hopefully all those kind of things. And it's interesting that you say that, that you use that platform because there's more interaction, because we also know that Twitter, uh, compared to the other platforms, it's a shorter time period that you have. So because so much is going on, yeah. it is there and you really need to be uh reshared to be able to keep on seeing what you're doing so obviously you're very successful in that um but uh the the message on the other platforms might stay on a little bit longer um or uh, the community feeling on so for on facebook there's a community feeling so when you have those people they're part of your community and they will go faster to that community while in twitter it's more a constant flow of of cases so it's interesting that you're saying that um any other because the one thing that i'm uh, lately experimenting a little bit more with is linkedin uh, because mm -hmm. linkedin is such a professional mm -hmm. platform and i noticed that you, you get quite a lot of responses on LinkedIn too. And, and they do say that uh, the, the LinkedIn responses and engagement often is higher than any of the other platforms. Do you have any experiences there? Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm <laughs> I'm pretty bad. I often forget about LinkedIn, which is which is terrible. Um, but on the on the occasion when I have posted on there, it's normally been when I've really thought there's something that could be of value to the people that I like, obviously that follow me and that I follow them on 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 LinkedIn and all of my connections. And so, for example, um, if I know about a really good course that either I'm participating in or one of my colleagues is running, then I'll definitely put that out there on LinkedIn. I haven't done so much with the with the case information, the cases posting on LinkedIn as yet. Um, but the couple that I have put on there did get a lot of good responses as well. So I, I think based on the limited experience I have, I would say that I agree, you do get a lot of interaction on, on those posts. Um, but it, for me, is one that I need to get better at including in, in my list of, of things and kind of adjusting the post and putting it out there in, mm -hmm. in a format that's appropriate for that audience, I guess. Yeah, LinkedIn seems to be the orphan, doesn't it, of the social <laughs> media group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're super busy uh, in general. So where do you find the time to do this? Yeah, it's... it's um, 
we've, I think it, it, it used to be very simple, didn't it? And now it gets more and more complex. So now every, every client that we want to kind of feature, we have to get their signatures and their yeah. Twitter handles or whatever, if they want to be involved and have all the sign off from all of them, which is totally appropriate, but it's added another layer of complexity to, to actually getting this done. Um, and obviously then that brings an education layer into it. So I have to educate my interns, residents, students about appropriate use of social media, what's good to go out there, what's not, because every time we say we're gonna post something, I don't want them to think that I just go out there and post everything. Um, and often as, um, Susan was saying earlier, just I think making sure that I have the follow up on something. So I've got the actually I'm saying I'm showing them something that worked rather than showing something that could fail next week. And then I just don't tell anyone that what I did failed. <laughs> so yeah. I tried to kind of post things like that way. But um, time wise, it's generally evenings. It's like there's no time in the working day to do this. The working day, as, as you guys both know, it gets extended and extended and extended. And this is yeah. often kind of I'll collect all the media I'm going to use during the day and get the permissions during the day and then actually formatting it, editing it, putting it into some format that's palatable for people is, is a in your free time mm. um, kind of project. Mm. <laughs> it, is, yeah, it is a good thing for your, your students and your interns to see though. Don't you think that's great, Yola, that they're getting yeah. some, you know, uh, walking, talking example, like this is how you do it and this is what you don't do. I think that's great. Yeah, and I also think that the storytelling that you do is really good. So it's not, you know, um, if you just put a picture there and say, uh, you know, just a one one liner, which happens for often, for instance, in Instagram, you don't have the story, and so people don't learn as much from it. So the storytelling that you do has always really attracted me, and I think uh, uh, that's something that students and and you know other clinicians and ge and general practitioners really appreciate. So that that's really cool. So going back to the cats, I, 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 you know, you said something that intrigued me and that was that a lot of cats are in pain, but we don't know that they are. Can you, you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, this is something that's a real soapbox moment for me. So do stop me when I keep going too far. Um, so this is something that I think is, is a real problem in cats. I mean, um, I think we're owners, veterinarians, everyone is, is tends to be very well educated about classical signs of pain in dogs and, and we know what to look for and particularly in my field orthopedics obviously a dog tends to be limping if it's got an orthopedic problem and that's pretty hard for owners to miss and ignore and it's pretty easy for us as, as trained professionals to pick up hopefully. So generally you know 95% of the canine cases that come into orthopedics are there appropriately and we know pretty much before we've even heard much about the case at all which legs affected and kind of the route we're going down. Um, our feline orthopedic cases have generally been round the houses completely before they even get to us and because of that I think a lot of them don't ever get to us. Um, so I think owners are not quite as well educated and not well informed and that's our job. We should be educating people better on what to look for. But the signs of pain in cats are just so different. Um, it can be just something as, as, as weird and bizarre as my cat used to sleep really well at night and now it runs around the room all night and annoys me and keeps me up. So I chuck it out of the bedroom, you know, so and that could be your cat's in pain. Mm. And yet it's not something that people will think of as that. They'll think my cat's just gone crazy and, and weird and needs to be sedated at night or something like mm -hmm. that and actually kind of translating that into my cat's in pain and can't rest properly and therefore is awake when it would normally be asleep is something that maybe doesn't completely see, be, seem to be intuitive. Um, 
and they very rarely present with a, an obvious lameness. Yeah. Um, normally it's kind of the cats become less sociable or it's not grooming appropriately or it's urinating or defecating differently. We had one this week that the only sign it was that the cat wasn't burying its feces in the litter tray anymore and that was the only thing that it had stopped doing. Um, so it's, it's interesting that I think those signs, we need to be better at educating owners about those signs. And if we educate the owners, I think we'll do much better at actually seeing these cases into the veterinary clinic and um, seeing them in the appropriate department and then hopefully having a better shot at getting them treated early. I think eventually some of them get to us, mm. but they get to us really late. And yeah. then they get to us when surgery is the only option or we've really missed the boat in terms of trying to just change their lifestyle and manage their condition. Um, in a less aggressive way. So much as I'm a surgeon, I would love to keep some of these cats out of surgery, at least for a little bit longer. <laughs> um, so if we saw them earlier, I think we'd have a better shot at that. So I think owner education and then probably a soapbox moment for both of you guys, I'm sure, which is why you do this, is maybe um, trying to get cats into the undergrad veterinary curriculum and a, a little bit more. Um, yeah. We're so stretched for time. I think we often kind of go, and then, and then there's cats and they're a little bit different. And we'll talk about that some other point. And we rarely get to that point unless they're on clinics and happen to see a cat on the clinic. Yeah. I think getting it into the veterinary degrees um, a little bit more consistently would be good as well. There's a challenge in vet teaching hospitals too, because not all of the vet teaching hospitals have enough feline population coming in the door either, right? And you, what you don't see also you can't teach, right? You don't, you lose that teachable moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, ours is super sporadic. Like we didn't see like during I think for I think for the last couple of weeks we didn't see a cat, and then suddenly this week I saw three. Yeah. So in one day, so <laughs> it's uh, this group of students have had a great learning experience with cats, and the stu student group that came before got basically nothing other than a remote rounds. Yeah. On feline orthopedics, which in two hours of remote rounds, there's very limited <laughs> things we can really cover. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something I've been concerned about actually for quite a while that um, vet teaching, uh, it is a, I think a flaw in this in the education plan, right? That vet teaching hospitals, I don't know very many of them that see a robust, consistent population of cats. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, no matter how good you are at teaching things, students leave without having any of that. I've seen a cat like this experience. Right. Yeah, it's so true. And then that contributes to this, you know, well, I'm scared of cats because I, I don't have the confidence level with them. And, and then we get this clamp the cat to the table, put a cat muzzle on it because I'm scared of it and actually read the signs. This cat's actually going to tolerate an examination Just perfectly well. But it's, uh, it's it's if you don't have the experience, then it's I guess it's human nature to be scared of what we don't yes. know. Right. So <laughs> I think we're, we're to blame a little bit ourselves, too, as veterinarians and as, as speakers, lecturers, because like you say, very often the cat is the last part of your lecture and you're in yeah. a hurry because you take too long and then you just have to do the cat thing. And, and when uh, Dr. Susan and I were talking about this, uh, when we started the podcast a long, long time ago, um, we felt that, that people were uncomfortable with information and they couldn't find the right information. Although Dr. Susan wrote this really thick book about mm -hmm. it uh, and they all love her to sign it. They bring it from everywhere to have her to sign it. Still the knowledge of cats is, 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 is very meager. And this is one of the reasons that we started the podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you said that uh, to confirm the need at least. Mm. And, and I agree with the, the teaching hospitals. I think when you have a really big primary care center associated with a teaching hospital, I think some, some of those centers have about 40% cats. So at least you get to deal with cats a little bit more, but most teaching hospitals, cats are definitely in the minority. 
Um, in, in my specialty, the surgical oncology, uh, we saw relatively more cats because when cats get cancer, mm. that's what people recognize and they will bring them in. So mm. you know, like oral cancer, skin cancer, those things come in much, much easier. But pain in cats is really tough. It's mm -hmm. a tough, tough disease. So uh, yeah. that's really cool. It is tough. And I, I think, you know, it's not just owners. We need to do a better job teaching veterinarians that cats are so, they're so good at hiding their signs of pain mm -hmm. that, you know, you do really need to have pain assessment or awareness that a cat might be painful at the, at, in the beginning of your um, work with a patient who's not doing well, right? Sure. Instead sure. of kind of leaving it till the end, oh, maybe it's pain. You know, I think that we just need to prioritize that and recognize it. And one of the other problems, and I'm sure this is an issue for particularly for you and what you do, is that we also, we don't have good tools for uh, recognizing or scoring um, chronic pain in, in cats. We're just beginning to see some arthritis assessment yeah. tools and we're beginning finally to get some good acute pain ones, but we've suffered from, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it either, right? It's That's huge and it, it's yeah. something that I, I talk, I hope, hopefully talk quite a lot about, but um, in terms of for orthopedics, but something that's really kind of, again, something that I'm really passionate about is we have medications in cats. A lot of them aren't licensed. We don't have a lot of information about side effects or how chronically we can give them without expecting side effects. And so we have to really careful about what we prescribe. And part of that is, well, then we need to know it's working if we're going to continue prescribing it. But then how do you know it's working if we don't have a good monitoring system? So I think one of the things that I try and do with every case that comes in again is, is try and get a baseline score with one of those checklists that that you spoke about and the feline musculoskeletal pain index is the one that i use most frequently but obviously there's lots out there the montreal um instruments out there too um but getting that initial score and then repeating that at every consultation so that i can make sure that well is my meloxicam achieving anything? If not, well then let's stop it because don't put the cat at risk of side effects if your medication's not achieving anything. So, but as you say that they're not perfect, but it's a lot, lot of good work being done and I find them very helpful rather than just relying on potentially an orthopedic exam in, in a cat that's really scared and doesn't respond to anything no matter how painful yeah. it is and, and um, or, or a cat that's very difficult to examine. At least that gives you another tool in your toolbox to Give you some confidence that hopefully you're doing the right thing or at least not doing the wrong, wrong thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we shouldn't be afraid to try analgesics either i mean that can be a test in and of itself too right it's so i do see too many veterinarians who want the cat to prove to them that it's in pain mm -hmm. before they'll treat it and i don't think as whether you're any kind of patient you shouldn't have to prove yeah. right it's not my job or the cat's job or you know any other animal's job to to prove they're in pain yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember I, I fractured my ankle playing sport and I, I went to the, um, I went to the A&E and I was, I was hopping on one leg and he was like, well, can you put your toe to the floor? And I was like, well, I've gotten it up. So isn't that enough of a sign that I don't want to do that? And he was like, no, I want to see you try. And I was like, okay. So I put my toe to the floor and I was like, ow, no. Okay. And then his next question was, well, can you hop on it? Oh my goodness. And I, was, I, don't, I don't understand what's, what's this diagnostic criteria that if I can hop on it, I'm okay and I don't need any treatment. And if I've collapsed on the floor in agony that you shouldn't have done that, I, I, don't, I don't know quite what this is. So, um, so yeah, so, same thing with, with, with our cats. It's kind of like, I mean, if you're not sure the cat's in pain, we do have options out there that we know are safe for at least a short period of time, if not for a long period of time. So a pain relief trial and, and then repeating one of those scores, repeating your exam, um, definitely a, a really useful tool for yeah. sure. 
and we'll put some links uh, in our uh, on our website to those uh, different scales that you can yeah. use. Uh, so, what is your top three uh, favorite products to use for for a cat that's in pain? Mm -hmm. um, probably uh, in terms of products, I would go with one of the non-steroidals, meloxicam or abenacoxib. I, I I guess I like meloxicam because of its liquid formulation, it's easier to titrate down um, and often owners find it easier to give. Yes. Although I have had a couple of owners that have said they find tablets easier to give and I'm like, well, I'm fine, I have that for you. Uh, but um, so yeah, meloxicam probably my favorite non-steroidal. I think we have more evidence on efficacy um, and um, more evidence on its chronic use, I guess. So that would probably be my preferred non-steroidal. If the non-steroidal in isolation doesn't work, um, I'm quite a big fan of um, amantadine, actually. Um, I think amantadine is just one of those, gabapentin I like, and it's my third choice probably, but gabapentin is a three times a day medication. I think owners really struggle with compliance with that. Um, if you're working at any kind of job, really, then who's at home three times a day at eight hour intervals to give gabapentin to their cat? So I think you end up giving it at 12 hour intervals and maybe it's not so efficacious there. So I tend to go with amantadine just because for ease, for client administration. Like, client compliance and um and then uh, if i need something addition to amantadine then i'll go gabapentin generally on top of that um tramadol i like for its efficacy but i hate the bitter taste so that they tend to salivate most of it back out at me whenever i administer tramadol to a cat so i i tend to steer away from that one unless the owner says they're already using it and it works for them yeah and we get yeah we didn't even talk about pilling cats so yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three times, four times a day. That's not our favorite thing to no. do. <laughs> but it just shows that it doesn't matter how good the drugs are if you know you're not thoughtful about what the owner can do, yeah. and then no drug's gonna help, right? So, right. yeah. And any patches in cats that you use or that you like or know? Um, I haven't used them a lot. I've used them occasionally for cats in hospital, following polytrauma cases, things like that, when we can control what they're, and when I can monitor them and make sure they're working. I, I'm a little wary of sending a cat home with a patch when mm -hmm. the, effic the efficacy of them is a little dubious. And I don't want to send the cat home and, and rely on the fact it's working when I'm not there to deliver some rescue analgesia or something if it, if it isn't. So I'm a little wary of them. I don't hate them by any stretch. In hospital, I'll try them, but I'm wary of sending them home. Mm. Yeah, so we always do a plug during the Power Podcast uh, if there's any pharmaceutical companies listening to get more intracutaneous or uh, transcutaneous products on, on mm -hmm. because it's so difficult for owners to pill cats, especially if you have to right. do it all the time. Right. And some cats really don't like you after that. So uh, it's true. And your owner cat bond is, is damaged irre irreparably by mm -hmm. having to pill your cat three times a day. So your cat's comfortable, but it hates you. So that's not, not quite, so, not a great outcome. <laughs> yeah. And, and for many clients, you know, they'll, they will choose not to medicate the cat. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, obviously I, I'm a vet, I, I should be able to administer medications. And yet when my cat was um, on medications that needed one twice a day, one every other day, one and, and a half a tablet in addition. And it was awful. My cat literally hated me. And I, and I was like, I only did it because I'm stubborn enough that I wasn't going to let the cat win, but it, it definitely affected our relationship during that time and it was very tempting not to give it and if that happened to me then I'm sure it happens to owners all the time. <laughs> My husband's a veterinarian and there's nothing funnier than seeing the two of us trying to treat one of our cats. It's pretty <laughs> yes funny. yeah we should tape that more often but uh, this was great I, I think we're already at the end of our first oh, no. session. I know it is so it's so amazing I mean when we have these topics that we're really interested in the time flies. It's just <laughs> 
Well, I'm glad we're going to have um, a second part of this because I have a list of Dr. Perry's patients, that she, cat patients, that she's posted on social media, and I want to ask her about them. Oh, <laughs> very good. And I have a question, too, because I want to know the top five diseases that she sees all the time. But that's next week. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so there you go. Got to tune in next week. Very excited. Uh, do you want the wrap-up? Do the wrap-up, Dr. Susan? So, how come I always do the wrap-up? Because you do it so well. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a look on your face right now. Well, thank you for that cue, Dr. Kirpenstein. Yes, I will do the wrap up. <laughs> I'll do the next one, I promise. You promise? Maybe. Okay, listen carefully. Listen, watch a pro. Okay, ready? Yes. So make sure that you uh, go to our website. It's perpodcast.net and you'll see all of our other great guests there. You'll see our episode list. You can listen directly on the website um, or you can find us in any app that you use to listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify or um, the uh, Apple podcast app, whatever you like to use, you should be able to find us. And we also do like social media. So you can find us at perpodcast on, uh, you'll find us on Facebook, you'll find us on Instagram and you'll find us on Twitter. Twitter. Maybe soon on LinkedIn, then I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to add a LinkedIn, yes. Yes, that sounds good. So, uh, so thank you, Carrie. This was awesome. We'll see you next week. Yay! Uh, thanks so much. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 